right from the beginning of uh, my relationship with Krista, from the beginning, from the time when we really started to get serious and talk about marriage and, and uh, talk about family, I've always told her that there were, I only ever had one vision for the family that I would hope that we would have. We both said that we wanted four girls, and that was, um, or four kids, which is awesome that we agreed on that. She, her priority, she said she didn't care what gender they were. She, she said she just wanted four kids who were close together so they could play with each other and be friends and, you know, thick as thieves and so on. And, um, and God kind of did that for us. Uh, I've got four kids between the ages of two and six. So uh, <laughs> my oldest was just over two years old when my third was born. They are very, very close together. Um, me, my, my priorities, I didn't really care how far apart or close together they were. Uh, I just said to Krista, I just want girls. So I only ever grew up with brothers. I, I had two brothers and I knew the whole little boys growing up, all of that. I knew what that was like. I lived that, But I never had a sister and I always wanted a sister. And so here I was, I just said to Krista, the only thing I really want out of our family, I know we have no control of this, but if I, if I could have four girls... I mean, that would just be a dream come true for me. The whole daddy-daughter thing, whatever. I just, I would love it. And Chris always insisted that I, not having had sisters, probably didn't realize what it was that I was asking for, which is true, <laughs> which is true. I am now learning uh, that that is true. I came home from work uh, one day a little while ago. I opened the door and literally all four girls were lying face down on the floor, bawling their eyes out. Like just wailing at the top of their lungs. Like the world was coming to an end. I walked through the door. There's all these girls wailing and sobbing in tears. And I looked at Chris. I was total confusion. I looked at Chris. I said, what on earth happened? She said, we, we had all girls. Which is what you wanted. Have fun with all of this. I just turned around and walked right out of the room. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I have been incredibly ill-equipped to deal with all of the tears. I am just amazed at all of the, of the tears. <laughs> I just didn't know people could cry that much and that hard for that long. I said to Krista a couple weeks ago, like, it's got to be emotionally exhausting to cry that much about that many things that hard and that often. Like, how do you have the energy to keep outputting these tears? And then as I turned to the text for this week and thought back to that comment and suddenly hit me that that's actually true of some of you this morning that's the place in, in life that you're in where you're just emotionally exhausted and have no idea how you find the energy to keep producing the tears that just with what's going on in your life what you're carrying right now it's just so heavy that um, you just can't believe that someone could cry that much and that hard about that many things. And if it's not you this morning, you know somebody. Maybe even you're here with somebody for whom that's true. And if that's you this morning, then I want to tell you that what Jesus says is just for you today. Last week, we turned back to our study in the, in the gospel according to Matthew, this, our study in the life of Jesus as is told by 
Matthew. And we looked, started to look at Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of what's been called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first recorded public sermon in the book of, of Matthew. And, and the, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' description of what life is like for those who are living in the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is the language that the Bible uses for what happens when God's goodness and his power and his love just sort of break into the world and, and make everything the way that it was supposed to be. It's what Jesus' public career was all about. He, he was teaching about the kingdom of God and he was, and he was healing people and, and you know, driving out uh, demons, you know, empowering people who are wrestling with demons and all this kind of stuff. He was talking about and demonstrating what life was like, the healing and the hope and the restoration that life was like in the kingdom of heaven and people were being drawn to it and so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount lays out this life, what life looks like for the person living in the kingdom of heaven and he opens the Sermon on the Mount with a list of eight characteristics that we're going to look at all this month and all next month. Eight characteristics that mark the life of the person who gets to experience the, peel, the, the peace and the healing and the joy and the spiritual intimacy and, the, and um, the justice, the fairness, the rightness of life when it's lived in relationship with the God of heaven in what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven. These eight characteristics have been called the Beatitudes. And the first one we looked at last week was, was blessed are the poor in spirit. Fortunate, lucky, you're lucky if you're poor in spirit. See, the good news of the kingdom turns out to be that it's a downside up kind of place. That the kingdom of heaven is not for those who are strong enough and smart enough and good enough and capable enough to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and grit their teeth and make themselves into something. The kingdom of heaven is not for people who are you know, physically healthy and financially comfortable and, and um, personally uh, admired and professionally accomplished and emotionally strong and relationally happy and um, you know, socially popular and, and all these. It's not for people whose life is going so well that they don't feel like they need God. It's not for people who have turned themselves into something. We talked last week about how the kingdom of God is for people who know that they're nothing who have nothing and are nothing, who are just over their head in life and running on empty and out of gas and out of hope and out of ideas and just helpless and hopeless and who know that they've got nothing and they need God to be everything and who throw themselves on God in utter dependence and say, God, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. And Jesus says, it's those people who are blessed, who know their desperate need for God because because they're the ones who experience the peace and the healing and the joy, the spiritual intimacy and the, and the justice and the rightness of life in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus moves on to the second beatitude, the second characteristic of the life of somebody who's experiencing the kingdom of heaven or the kind of person who gets to experience the kingdom of heaven. And it turns out, at least in my opinion, that, that this week and next Sunday and the Sunday after, these next three Beatitudes, I think, all further describe the life of the person who's poor in spirit. If you are in over your head in life and helpless and hopeless and so on, then, then these things are also true of you. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the second Beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are broken by the pain of life. Blessed are those who are grieving. Now Jesus doesn't mean blessed are the sad, blessed are the people who are disappointed, blessed are the people who feel let down a little bit. He says blessed are those who are grieving. The word kind of implies this internal grief that becomes so large that it eventually manifests itself in some public and some external behaviors. It sort of spills out in sobs and wails and tears and it's the kind of grief that is so heavy and so deep and so thick you cannot contain it. Blessed are those who are being crushed, who are being devastated by life. Blessed are those who mourn. Scholars argue about whether or not what Jesus means is blessed are those who are experiencing pain and brokenness because of the the brokenness of life and of this world. Or whether Jesus is talking about blessed are those who are broken and, and, and experiencing the pain of being broken in terms of their own sin. Are we mourning over sin or are we mourning over pain? And To me, I think that's a false choice. It's a false dichotomy. In in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for evil equally applies to to like moral corruption, which you know includes my own character and systemic evil and global evil and so on. It applies to moral corruption and equally applies to tragedy and tragic consequences and circumstances and so on. The terrible things that happen in life, the painful things that we endure. Um, theft is evil. And a hurricane is evil. And what Jesus is saying, I think when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he says, blessed are those who are just broken by everything that's wrong with the world. Everything that's wrong with life. Everything that's wrong with you. All of it. Just the blessed are those who are broken by the brokenness of the world. You know, when I think about blessed are those who mourn, I think about the news. The stuff you see night after night. I think about 100,000 Syrians who are either dead or missing. 1.2 million refugees from Syria, chemical warfare, all of this nonsense as the result of a senseless uh, civil war. I think about a quarter of a million Somalis dead in a famine two years ago. I think about 1,000 Bangladeshis who died in the collapse of a factory. A factory that housed actually five garment companies that were hard at work making cheap clothes for rich Westerners who have loads of cash but are looking to save a buck. It's senseless. It's nonsense. When I, when I think, well, blessed are those who mourn, I think about um, three women in Cleveland locked in a basement and in a garage and in an attic for 10 years. I just think that's wrong. The world is wrong. It's broken. And if you slow down long enough and think about it, it just breaks your heart. I think about my calendar. I think about the people I meet in our community, the people I talk to, marriages being destroyed by addiction, whether substance abuse or sex addiction, 
people staring down the barrel of disease, people whose kids are going off the rail, beautiful people being crushed under the weight of loneliness, Christ followers being debilitated by, by spiritual doubt, and you just think, this is wrong, it's wrong, Things life should not be this way. If you slow down long enough, your heart can really begin to break over the brokenness of life in the world. But I think about more than that. When I hear blessed are those who mourn, I think about the way I've experienced brokenness in my own life. You know, Krista and I went through a season a number of years ago now where it just felt like sheer pain from one end to the other. Within less than 10 months, we had stood by the graveside three times and buried family members who had died. In December 07, I buried my one grandfather. In October 08, I buried my second grandfather. And right there, smack dab in the middle, five years ago today, we stood at the graveside and we buried my mom. The day after Mother's Day, 2008, life cut short at 64 years of age when she lost a battle to a brain tumor. She only ever got to hold two of my kids. It's just wrong. Life shouldn't be that way. 18 months later, a year after we buried my second grandfather, in the middle of Krista's second trimester, we stood at the graveside again and buried a son who would never get to be a part of our family. A year after that, on Christmas Eve, my friend Mark ran out of gas, ran out of ideas, ran out of options, and ran out of hope and took his own life. And we stood at the graveside again and buried a friend whose life should have never come to an end. And you just, it's just wrong. The world shouldn't be that way. When I really slow down and I think about the blessing of, for those who mourn, I think about the stuff that's broken just with me my spirit with who I am you know the spiritual arrogance that we talked about last week some for some reason living as though I'm strong enough and smart enough and capable enough and good enough to not really need God in my life or spiritual apathy that means that so much of the time I'm too lazy or too busy to really carve out that time to spend pursuing intimacy with God or I think about the self-centeredness How little I demonstrate the love and the joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. How little self-control I have in my relationship with my wife and in my relationship with my kids and with my friends. The stuff that the Bible says is supposed to be the hallmark of a person filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just think, how can I not reflect the image of Christ? It's just wrong. I think about the selfishness of wanting so badly to be more sacrificial and more generous, more compassionate and more driven to justice for those who have less, both here at home and around the world. And I just think of the ways in which I can't even be the person that I want to be. And and if you slow down long enough and think about who you are, your heart can just break about what's broken inside of you. And sometimes when I think about it, my heart breaks over how little my heart breaks over the brokenness in the world. There's so much wrong with the world, with the way that it is. 
And if you let yourself absorb it in those seasons when you're not in that place, when you're in that place, you don't need to be told what kind of world it is, but you, when, you, when you let yourself absorb it, there's just something inside of you that breaks. And it's that brokenness over the brokenness of the world that Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. And the question is, what kind of blessing comes to those who are just broken like that? And Jesus says, tells us in, in Matthew 5, verse 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. What's that comfort look like? I, I thought about that so much in the last couple of weeks, and at the end of the day, if you're in that place this morning of just being broken and desperate and hungry for the comfort of God, I think there's two things that God would want to say to you. The first one is this. My comfort can be found in the fact that I am with you in the midst of your pain. That my heart breaks to see your heart broken. I am broken over your brokenness and I am with you weeping over the pain you feel in your life. I am with you. I I thought this week about the story that so many of us read last month in John chapter 11. If you were with us in April and you read the the book of John chapter by chapter, as so many of us did, um, you know the story about Jesus and his friend Lazarus and how Jesus got word out of nowhere that his friend Lazarus had suddenly fallen very ill and then eventually Lazarus dies. And and so Jesus... Excuse me, he gets up from where he is and he goes to the town of Bethany where Lazarus' house is. And he goes to the house and he's confronted by the scene of people um, just in grief. Lazarus' sisters grieving the loss of a brother who should have never died. The whole house filled with friends and family and relatives. Just people who are broken um, over the loss of Lazarus. And right in the middle of this story in John chapter 11... There's this beautiful little verse, the shortest verse in all of the Bible, but it tells you some of the biggest truth about who God is in the midst of your pain. In John eleven thirty five, it says this, very simply, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how we loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man had kept this man from dying? That's, that's what we ask, right? In the midst of our pain, God, where are you? In the midst of, how could you have let this happen? How could you have done this to me? Don't you know? Don't you care what's going on in my life? And right in the middle of it, right in the middle of their grief, there stands Jesus surrounded by this brokenness. And he just breaks down and weeps. He weeps over the loss of his friend. He weeps over the grief of the people that he's surrounded by. He weeps over a world in which our loved ones are stolen from us way too early. And he just weeps. And we cry out to God, where are you? And if we would be quiet enough to listen, we would hear God say in his own way, I'm right here. I'm right here. I know your pain. In Psalm 56, it says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. God says, I know the pain. I see your tears. 
I am with you in the midst and I am weeping for you and I am weeping with you. I am broken over your brokenness. Krista and I had a really awesome experience of, of the comfort of God in the midst of our pain during that, that period of time in our lives. Um, our approach to naming our kids was pretty standard all the way through. Um, we have different values when it comes to giving our kids names, and so we had agreed that each one of us would give our kids one of their names. And so Krista, who really at the end of the day just wanted a name that was unique and pretty, she gave her kids uh, their first names most of the time. And I, on the other hand, I wanted a name that was deep and meaningful, and so I gave our kids their second name most of the time. And... Um, and so we would have these conversations. You know, our first kid came along and uh, our first daughter was born and Krista said, I want to name her Arlie. It's a really pretty name. And so I went back to the computer and I got onto Google, baby name meaning Arlie, enter. Um, the name Arlie literally means rabbit meadow. It's like a field full of bunnies. It's not exactly the most meaningful name in the history of humanity, unless Arlie goes on to have a lot of kids one day, I guess. But it's, it was just like, all right, whatever. But I wanted it to be meaningful, so I gave her the middle name Carice, which is Greece for, Greek for grace. And then our second kid came along, and Krista said, I want to name her Kennedy. Baby name, meaning Kennedy. It, <laughs> it means helmet head. Uh, <laughs> Which, if you had seen her hair when she was born, not entirely inappropriate. It's actually, I give Krista credit for this one. It's metaphorical. It means warrior. The helmet on the head, right? It's, and she's our feisty one. She's our fighter. And I gave her the middle name Zoe, which means life. She's so full of life. And then our third came along and I wanted to name her Trevi, which is from a Latin phrase that means... Uh, Three roads, uh, <laughs> awesome stuff. And Krista gave her her middle name, Kate. Trevi was born six months after my mom died and Catherine was her middle name, Trevi Kate. And then a year later, in October of 2010, Krista was laboring all night long in the stillbirth room at St. Joe's Hospital. And all night long, every time she woke up, she said this distinct impression that God was speaking into her spirit and God was saying, uh, this is a boy and his name is Tristan. This is a boy and his name is Tristan. This is a boy, his name is Tristan. We didn't know the gender of the baby and we had never talked about the name Tristan but she kept feeling that this is a boy and his name is Tristan and so when he was born the next morning we had him tested and he was a boy the only boy we had and so we named him Tristan and later that night I went to the computer baby name meaning Tristan do you know what the name Tristan means? it's from the French word triste which means sad and I told Krista that his name means sad and she burst into tears and she said, God gets it. God gets it. He knows what we're going through and his heart breaks with ours and that's the point. That God is with you in the midst of your pain and he knows it and he feels it and his heart breaks with yours. Jesus weeps. 
And I know somebody's going to say, that's fine for you. I've never had an experience like that. And, and by the way, there's no Jesus standing by my graveside as I bury my loved one. Where's Jesus then? And I'll tell you, he is there. Not just in spirit, he is there. The Bible tells us that the church is the body of Christ, which means that everything that Jesus did in his physical body, we now do as individuals and as a community following him, we now physically incarnate the presence of Jesus to the world. And so when you're standing beside that grave and you're surrounded by people whose arms are around you and who are weeping with you and loving you, that is the love and the comfort of Jesus standing right there with you. And friends, if we could just learn to be honest about our pain and to open up and to be vulnerable and to let each other in and if we can just learn to step into it even though it's going to be messy and ugly and awkward and we're not going to know what to say, if we can just learn to be the presence of Jesus to each other in the midst of the pain and don't do anything else, you know what would happen? Blessed would be those who mourn because they would be comforted by God. They would feel the love and comfort of God in the midst of their pain. But you know what, friends? Jesus means more than that. When he says they'll be comforted, he doesn't just mean we'll generally feel better when our life is still crappy. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, what he means is, blessed are those who mourn because the kingdom of God is coming and the power of God, the loving goodness of God is going to burst into their lives and turn their world downside up. And there is going to be peace into the chaos and destruction. And there is going to be healing into the sickness and disease. And there is going to be joy into the sadness. And there is going to be spiritual intimacy into the alienation and the farness from God. And there is going to be justice when life is unfair. God is going to break into the world in power and hope. And he's going to turn everything around. And you're going to get to experience the power of the kingdom of God making everything in your world right again. Most scholars believe that when Jesus was preaching the Beatitudes, he was preaching out of Isaiah chapter 61, a prophecy that was preached 800 years before Jesus lived. And it was a prophecy that Jesus said applied to him. And this is what it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what we talked about last week. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Isaiah says when Messiah comes, he's going to step into our worlds, and he's going to bring the kingdom, and the power of God is going to take everything that's wrong with the world and make it right again. And sometimes that means the power of God is going to be working on you miraculously and he's going to bring healing into your life in ways that you could have never imagined. Healing to your body and healing to your marriage and healing to your spirit and healing to your identity. And sometimes it means that God is going to not be um, working over you, it's, he's going to be working through you. And as you work together with the rest of us in the community and we work together as community, in community, we become the the vehicle for God's powerful healing in other people's lives and we bring healing into the lives of each other and into our families and into our city and into our world. 
and every time, regardless of whether God works over you and regardless of whether God works through you, God will be working in you. In James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, and James is the brother of Jesus, he knew what it was to lose a loved one. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. James says, in the midst of the pain, cry out to God and ask for the wisdom to see how he is making you whole and complete. How he is maturing you and growing you through this very experience. And then thank God that the kingdom is coming in your spirit and in your soul. Comfort is not just about feeling better. It is about the power of God coming into our lives and turning everything right side up again. Do you know what Jesus did after weeping for Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. And that's the point. That after death, through death comes resurrection. I gave Tristan a middle name and it was Anastasis which is the Greek word that means resurrection, because I said to Krista, this story is not over. And then our fourth baby was born healthy, and her name was Briley, which has no known meaning whatsoever. We kind of really hit rock bottom at that point. And we gave her the middle name, Joy. Because out of the sadness, God brought joy. And she has been the joy. If Jesus' cross has taught us anything, it's that life comes through death, that healing comes through suffering, that wholeness comes through brokenness, and that comfort comes to those that mourn. And not just what God does in our lives right now, because friends, that's just a foretaste. That's just the, the appetizers to the full feast that is to come, because one day Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he returns, the kingdom of God is going to come with him to earth as it is in heaven, and he is going to fuse earth and heaven together, and life on earth is going to be the life of heaven, life the way it was always intended to be. John says that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, to defeat evil, to purge the world of everything that is wrong. And on the day that he returns, the work that he began that has continued on through the Spirit and by the church will be completed by Jesus Christ in that last day. And in Revelation 21, it says that John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away this world isn't what the world used to be anymore it is brand new and friends it's in that day that the poor in spirit those who know that they have nothing who are in over their heads and who throw themselves before God in utter dependence mourning and crying and grieving in the brokenness over everything that's wrong with the world in that day those people will be comforted to know that they will spend all eternity living the life of heaven in the presence of the God of heaven as part of the kingdom of heaven in a place that some people even call heaven 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The promise of God. And yet I know that there are people here this morning who don't want to hear about heaven. You don't want to hear that it's going to all be okay someday. You know that, and that doesn't help today. In fact, you don't even want to hear that God is growing you up through this, and maybe he'll heal you, maybe he won't. That's not helping today. In fact, it doesn't even really help to know that we're around you and with you and loving you and suffering with you. What you need today is to know that God is standing there in the midst of your pain with you. His heart broken over the brokenness of your heart. Weeping with you and over you and for you as you weep over everything that is wrong with you and with life and with this world. And I want to invite the band to the stage right now and over the next few minutes, we've left ourselves lots of time for worship at the end of this service. Over the next few minutes, I want to invite you to spend this time opening yourselves up to the presence of God in the midst of your pain. Allow yourself to hear God's voice in your spirit, to hear God say, I am with you and I am for you and my heart breaks for you and just open yourselves up to experience the powerful comforting, healing presence of a God whose heart breaks over the brokenness of your heart, who weeps with you over everything that's wrong with the world and allow him to speak words of comfort and hope into your spirit.